Section fifty eight of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox. L I B R I V O X dot org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book sixteen, chapters seven to ten. Chapter seven, in which Mr. Western pays a visit to his sister in company with Mr. Bliffle. Mrs. Weston was reading a lecture on prudence and matrimonial politics to her niece, when her brother and Bliffle broke in with less ceremony than the laws of visiting require. Sophia no sooner saw Bliffle than she turned pale, and almost lost the use of all her faculties. But her aunt, on the contrary, waxed red, and having all her faculties at command, began to exert her tongue on the squire. "'Brother,' said she, I am astonished at your behaviour. Will you never learn any regard to decorum? Will you still look upon every apartment as your own, or as belonging to one of your country tenants? Do you think yourself at liberty to invade the privacies of women of condition without the least decency or notice? Why, what a pox is the matter now? quoth the squire. One would think I had caught you at none of your brutality sir i beseech you answered she you've surprised my poor niece so that she can hardly i see support herself go my dear retire and endeavour to recruit your spirits for i see you have occasion at which words sophia who never received a more welcome command hastily withdrew to be sure sister cries the squire you are mad when I have brought Mr. Blifflier to court her, to force her away. Sure, brother, says she, you are worse than mad, when you know in what situation affairs are, to— I am sure I ask Mr. Bliffle's pardon, but he knows very well to whom to impute so disagreeable a reception. For my own part, I am sure I shall always be very glad to see Mr. Bliffle, but his own good sense would not have suffered him to proceed so abruptly had you not compelled him to it. Bliffle bowed and stammered, and looked like a fool, but Western, without giving him time to form a speech for the purpose, answered, "'Well, well, I am to blame, if you will. I always am, certainly. But come, let the girl be fetched back again, or let Mr. Bliffle go to her. He's come up on purpose, and there is no time to be lost.' "'Brother!' cries Mrs. Western. "'Mr. Bliffle, I am confident.' understands himself better than to think of seeing my niece any more this morning after what has happened women are of a nice contexture and our spirits when disorders are not to be recomposed in a moment had you suffered mr bliffle to have sent his compliments to my niece and to have desired the favour of waiting on her in the afternoon i should possibly have prevailed on her to have seen him but now i despair of bringing about any such matter "'I'm very sorry, madam,' cried Bliffle, "'that Mr. Weston's extraordinary kindness to me, "'which I can never enough acknowledge, should have occasioned.' "'Indeed, sir,' said she, interrupting him, "'you need make no apologies. "'We all know my brother so well.' "'I don't care what any one knows of me,' answered the squire. "'But when must he come to see her? "'For, consider, I tell you, he has come upon purpose, and so is Allworthy. Brother, said she, whatever message Mr. Bliffle thinks proper to send to my niece shall be delivered to her, and I suppose she will want no instructions to make a proper answer. 
I am convinced she will not refuse to see Mr. Bluffle at a proper time. The devil she won't, answered the squire. Odds blood. Don't we know? I say nothing, but some folk are wiser than all the world. If I might have had my will, she had not run away before, and now I expect to hear every moment she is gone again. For as great a fool as some folk think me, I know very well she hates. No matter, brother replied mrs western i will not hear my niece abused it is a reflection on my family she is an honour to it and she will be an honour to it i promise you i will pawn my whole reputation in the world on her conduct i shall be glad to see you brother in the afternoon for i have somewhat of importance to mention to you at present mr bliffle as well as you must excuse me for i am in haste address well but said the squire do appoint a time "'Indeed,' said she, "'I can appoint no time. "'I tell you, I will see you in the afternoon.' "'What the devil would you have me do?' cries the squire, turning to Bliffle. "'I can no more turn her than a beagle can turn an old air. "'Perhaps she will be in a better humour in the afternoon.' "'I am condemned, I see, sir, to misfortune,' answers Bliffle. "'But I shall always earn my obligations to you.' Then he took a ceremonious leave of Mrs. Western, who was altogether a ceremonious on her part, and then they departed, the squire muttering to himself with a note that Bliffle should see his daughter in the afternoon. If Mr. Western was little pleased with this interview, Bliffle was less. As to the former, he imputed the whole behaviour of his sister to her humour only, and to her dissatisfaction at the omission of ceremony in the visit, but Bliffle saw a little deeper into things. He suspected somewhat of more consequence from two or three words which dropped from the lady, and to say the truth, he suspected right, as will appear when I have unfolded the several matters which will be contained in the following chapters. Chapter 8. Schemes of Lady Bellaston for the Ruin of Jones Love had taken too deep a root in the mind of Lord Fellamar to be plucked up by the rude hands of Mr. Western. In the heat of resentment he had, indeed, given a commission to Captain Eglane, which the captain had far exceeded in the execution. Nor had it been executed at all, had his wardship been able to find the captain after he had seen Lady Bellaston, which was in the afternoon of the day after he had received the affront, but so industrious was the captain in the discharge of his duty that, having after a long inquiry found out the squire's lodgings very late in the evening, he sat up all night at a tavern that he might not miss the squire in the morning, and by that means miss the revocation which my lord had sent to his lodgings. In the afternoon then, next after the intended rape of Sophia, his lordship, as we have said, made a visit to Lady Bellaston, who laid open so much of the character of the squire that his lordship plainly saw the absurdity he had been guilty of in taking any offence at his words, especially as he had those honourable designs on his daughter. He then unbosomed the violence of his passion to Lady Bellaston, who readily undertook the cause, and encouraged him with certain assurance of a most favourable reception from all the elders of the family and from the father himself, when he should be sober, and should be made acquainted with the nature of the offer made to his daughter. The only danger, she said, lay in the fellow she had formerly mentioned, who, though a beggar and a vagabond, had, by some means or other, she knew not what, 
procured himself tolerable clothes and a past for a gentleman. Now, says she, as I have for the sake of my cousin made it my business to inquire after this fellow, I have luckily found out his lodgings. With which she then acquainted his lordship. I am thinking, my lord, for this fellow is too mean for your personal resentment, whether it would not be possible for your lordship to contrive some method of having him pressed and sent on board a ship. Neither law nor conscience forbid this project, for the fellow, I promise you, however well dressed, is but a vagabond, and as proper as any fellow in the streets to be pressed into the service. And as for the conscientious part, surely the preservation of a young lady from such ruin is a most meritorious act. Nay, with regard to the fellow himself, unless he could succeed, which heaven forbid, with my cousin, it may probably be the means of preserving him from the gallows, and perhaps may make his fortune in an honest way. Lord Falamar very heartily thanked her ladyship for the part which she was pleased to take in the affair, upon the success of which his whole future happiness entirely depended. He said he saw at present no objection to the pressing scheme, and would consider of putting it in execution. He then most earnestly recommended to her ladyship to do him the honour of immediately mentioning his proposal to the family, to whom he said he offered a carte blanche, and would settle his fortune in almost any manner they should require. And after uttering many ecstasies and raptures concerning Sophia, he took his leave and departed, but not before he had received the strongest charge to beware of Jones, and to lose no time in securing his person, where he should no longer be in a capacity of making any attempts to the ruin of the young lady. The moment Mrs. Western was arrived in her lodgings, a card was dispatched with her compliments to Lady Bellaston, who no sooner received it than, with the impatience of a lover, she flew to her cousin, rejoiced at this fair opportunity which beyond her hopes offered itself, for she was much better pleased with the prospect of making the proposals to a woman of sense, and who knew the world, than to a gentleman whom she honoured with the appellation of Hottentot, though indeed from him she apprehended no danger or refusal. The two ladies being met, after very short previous ceremonials, fell to business, which was indeed almost as soon concluded as begun, for Mrs. Western no sooner heard the name of Lord Fellamar than her cheeks glowed with pleasure, but when she was acquainted with the eagerness of his passion, the earnestness of his proposals, and the generosity of his offer, she declared her full satisfaction in the most explicit terms. In the progress of their conversation, their discourse turned to Jones, and both cousins very pathetically lamented the unfortunate attachment which both agreed Sophia had to that young fellow, and Mrs. Western entirely attributed it to the folly of her brother's management. She concluded, however, at last, with declaring her confidence in the good understanding of her niece, who, though she would not give up her affection in favour of Bliffel, will, I doubt not, says she, soon be prevailed upon to sacrifice a simple inclination to the addresses of a fine gentleman, who brings her both a title and a large estate. For indeed, added she, I must do so for the justice to confess this Bliffel is but a hideous kind of fellow, as you know. Belaston, all country gentlemen are, and hath nothing but his fortune to recommend him. 
Nay, said Lady Bellaston, I don't then so much wonder at my cousin, for I promise you this Jones is a very agreeable fellow, and hath one virtue, which the men say is a great recommendation to us. What do you think, Mrs. Weston? I shall certainly make you laugh. Nay, I can hardly tell you myself for laughing. Will you believe that fellow hath had the assurance to make love to me? But if you should be inclined to disbelieve it, here is evidence enough. His own handwriting, I assure you. She then delivered her cousin a letter with the proposals of marriage, which, if the reader hath a desire to see, he will find already on record in the fifteenth book of this history. Upon my word, I am astonished, said Mrs. Western. This is indeed a masterpiece of assurance. With your leave, I may possibly make some use of this letter. You have my full liberty, cries Lady Bellaston, to apply it to what purpose you please. However, I would not have it shown to any but Miss Weston, nor to her, unless you find occasion. Well, and how did you use the fellow? returned Mrs. Weston. Not as a husband, said the lady. I am not married, I promise you. My dear, you know, Bell, I have tried the comforts once already, and once, I think, is enough for any reasonable woman. This letter, Lady Bellaston thought, would certainly turn the balance against Jones in the mind of Sophia, and she was emboldened to give it up, partly by our hopes of having him instantly dispatched out of the way, and partly by having secured the evidence of honour, who, upon sounding her, she saw sufficient reason to imagine was prepared to testify whatever she pleased. But perhaps the reader may wonder why Lady Bellaston, who in her heart hated Sophia, should be so desirous of promoting a match which was so much to the interest of the young lady. Now I would desire such readers to look carefully into human nature, page almost the last. And there he will find in scarce legible characters that women, notwithstanding the preposterous behaviour of mothers, aunts, etc., in matrimonial matters do in reality think it so great a misfortune to have their inclinations in love thwarted that they imagine they ought never to carry enmity higher than upon these disappointments again. He will find it written much about the same place, that a woman who hath once been pleased with the possession of a man will go above half-way to the devil to prevent any other woman from enjoying the same. If he will not be contented with these reasons, I freely confess I see no other motive to the actions of that lady, unless we will conceive she was bribed by Lord Fellamar which, for my own part, I see no cause to suspect. Now this was the affair which Mrs. Weston was preparing to introduce to Sophia by some prefatory discourse on the folly of love and on the wisdom of legal prostitution for hire, when her brother and Blifil broke abruptly in upon her, and hence arose all that coldness in her behaviour to Blifil, which, though the squire, as was usual with him, imputed to a wrong cause, infused into Blifil himself, he being a much more cunning man, a suspicion of the real truth. Chapter 9. In which Jones pays a visit to Mrs. Fitzpatrick. The reader may now perhaps be pleased to return with us to Mr. Jones, who at the appointed hour attended on Mrs. Fitzpatrick. But before we relate the conversation which now passed, it may be proper, according to our method, to return a little back and to account for so great an alteration of behaviour in this lady, that from changing her lodging principally to avoid Mr. Jones, she had now industriously 
as hath been seen, sought this interview. And here we shall need only to resort to what happened the preceding day, when, hearing from Lady Bellaston that Mr. Weston was arrived in town, she went to pay her duty to him, at his lodgings at Piccadilly, where she was received with many scurvy compilations, too coarse to be repeated, and was even threatened to be kicked out of doors. From hence, an old servant of her Aunt Weston, with whom she was well acquainted, conducted her to the lodgings of that lady, who treated her not more kindly, but more politely, or, to say the truth, with rudeness in another way. In short, she returned from both, plainly convinced, not only that her scheme of reconciliation had proved abortive, but that she must forever give over all thoughts of bringing it about by any means whatever. From this moment, desire of revenge only filled her mind, and in this temper, meeting Jones at the play, an opportunity seemed to her to occur of effecting this purpose. The reader must remember that he was acquainted by Mrs. Fitzpatrick, in the account she gave of her own story, with the fondness Mrs. Western had formerly shown for Mr. Fitzpatrick at Bath, from the disappointment of which Mrs. Fitzpatrick derived the great bitterness her aunt had expressed towards her. She had, therefore, no doubt but that the good lady would as easily listen to the addresses of Mr. Jones as she had before done to the other, for the superiority of charms was clearly on the side of Mr. Jones, and the advance which her aunt had since made in age she concluded, how justly I will not say, was an argument rather in favour of her project than against it. Therefore, when Jones attended, after a previous declaration of her desire of serving him, arising, as she said, from a firm assurance of how much she should, by so doing, oblige Sophia, and after some excuses for her former disappointment, and after acquainting Mr. Jones, in whose custody his mistress was, of which she thought him ignorant, she very explicitly mentioned her scheme to him, and advised him to make sham addresses to the older lady, in order to procure an easy access to the younger, informing him at the same time of the successes which Mr. Fitzpatrick had formerly owed to the same stratagem. Mr. Jones expressed great gratitude to the lady for the kind intentions towards him which she had expressed, and indeed testified by this proposal. But, besides intimating some diffidence of success from the lady's knowledge of his love to her niece, which had not been the case in regard to Mr. Fitzpatrick, he said he was afraid Miss Western would never agree to an imposition of this kind, as well from her utter detestation of all fallacy as from her avowed duty to her aunt. Mrs. Fitzpatrick was a little nettled at this, and indeed, if it may not be called a lapse of the tongue, it was a small deviation from politeness in Jones, and into which he scarce would have fallen, had not the delight he felt in praising Sophia hurried him out of all reflection, for this commendation of one cousin was more than a tacit rebuke on the other. "'Indeed, sir,' answered the lady with some warmth, "'I cannot think there is anything easier than to cheat an old woman with a profession of love, when her complexion is amorous, and, though she is my aunt, I must say there never was a more licorice one than her ladyship. Can't you pretend that the despair of possessing her niece from her being promised to Bliffle has made you turn your thoughts towards her? As to my cousin Sophia, I can't imagine her to be such a simpleton as to have the least scruple on such an account, or to conceive any harm 
in punishing one of these hags for the many mischiefs they bring upon families by their tragic passions, for which I think it is a pity they are not punishable by law. I had no such scruple myself, and yet I hope my cousin Sophia will not think it an affront when I say she cannot detest every real species of falsehood more than her cousin Fitzpatrick. My aunt, indeed, I pretend no duty, nor does she deserve any. However, sir, I have given you my advice, and if you decline pursuing it, I shall have the less opinion of your understanding. That's all. Jones now clearly saw the error he had committed, and exerted his utmost power to rectify it. But he only faltered and stuttered into nonsense and contradiction. To say the truth, it is often safer to abide by the consequences of the first blunder than to endeavour to rectify it for by such endeavours we generally plunge deeper instead of extricating ourselves, and few persons will on such occasions have the good nature which Mrs. Fitzpatrick displayed to Jones, by saying with a smile, You need attempt no more excuses, for I can easily forgive a real lover, whatever is the effect of fondness for his mistress. She then renewed her proposal, and very fervently recommended it, omitting no argument which her invention could suggest on the subject, for she was so violently incensed against her aunt that scarce anything was capable of affording her equal pleasure with exposing her, and like a true woman she would see no difficulties in the execution of a favourite scheme. Jones, however, persisted in declining the undertaking, which had not indeed the least probability of success. He easily perceived the motives which induced Mrs. Fitzpatrick to be so eager in pressing her advice. He said he would not deny the tender and passionate regard he had for Sophia, but was so conscious of the inequality of their situations that he could never flatter himself so far as to hope that so divine a young lady would condescend to think on so unworthy a man. Nay, he protested, he could scarce bring himself to wish she should. He concluded with a profession of generous sentiments, which we have not at present leisure to insert. There are some fine women, for I dare not here speak in too general terms, with whom self is so predominant that they never detach it from any subject, and, as vanity is with them a ruling principle, they are apt to lay hold of whatever praise they meet with, and though the property of others, convey it to their own use. In the company of these ladies it is impossible to say anything handsome of another woman which they will not apply to themselves. Nay, they often improve the praise they seize. As, for instance, if her beauty, her wit, her gentility, her good humour deserves so much commendation, what do I deserve, who possess those qualities in so much more eminent a degree? For these ladies a man often recommends himself while he is commending another woman, and while he is expressing ardour and generous sentiments for his mistress, they are considering what a charming lover this man would make to them, who can feel all this tenderness for an inferior degree of merit. Of this, strange as it may seem, I have seen many instances beside Mrs. Fitzpatrick, to whom all this really happened, and now who began to feel a somewhat for Mr. Jones the symptoms of which she much sooner understood than poor Sophia had formerly done. To see the truth, perfect beauty in both sexes is a more irresistible object than it is generally thought. For, notwithstanding some of us are contented with more homely lots, and learn by rote, as children, to repeat what gives them no idea, to despise outside, and to value more solid charms, yet I have always observed at the approach of consummate beauty, 
that these more solid charms only shine with that kind of lustre which the stars have after the rising of the sun. When Jones had finished his exclamations, many of which would have become the mouth of Oradatis himself, Mrs. Fitzpatrick heaved a deep sigh, and taking her eyes off from Jones, on whom they had been some time fixed, and dropping them on the ground, she cried, Indeed, Master Jones, I pity you, but it is the curse of such tenderness to be thrown away on those who are insensible of it. I know my cousin better than you, Mr. Jones, and I must say, any woman who makes no return to such a passion and such a person is unworthy of both. Sure, madam, said Jones, you can't mean— Mean? cries Mrs. Fitzpatrick. I know not what I mean. There is something. I think in true tenderness bewitching, few women ever meet with it in men, and fewer still know how to value it when they do. I never heard such truly noble sentiments, and I can't tell how it is, but you force one to believe you. Sure, she must be the most contemptible of women who can overlook such merit. The manner and look with which all this was spoke infused a suspicion into Jones, which we don't care to convey in direct words to the reader. Instead of making any answer, he said, I'm afraid, madam, I have made too tiresome a visit, and offered to take his leave. Not at all, sir, answered Mrs. Fitzpatrick. Indeed, I pity you, Mr. Jones, indeed I do. But if you are going, consider of the scheme I have mentioned. I am convinced you will approve it and let me see you again as soon as I can. Tomorrow morning, if you will, or at least some time tomorrow, I shall be at home all day. Jones then, after many expressions of thanks, very respectfully retired. Nor could Mrs. Fitzpatrick forbear making him a present of a look at parting, by which, if he had understood nothing, he must have no understanding in the language of the eyes. In reality it confirmed his resolution in returning to her no more, for, faulty as he hath hitherto appeared in this history, his whole thoughts were now so confined to his Sophia that I believe no woman upon earth could have now drawn him into an act of inconstancy. Fortune, however, who was not his friend, resolved, as he intended to give her no second opportunity, to make the best of this, and accordingly produced the tragical incident which we are now in sorrowful notes to record. Chapter 10. The Consequence of the Preceding Visit Mr. Fitzpatrick, having received the letter before mentioned from Mrs. Western, and being by that means acquainted with the place to which his wife was retired, returned directly to Bath, and thence the day after set forward to London. The reader hath been already often informed of the jealous temper of this gentleman. He may likewise be pleased to remember the suspicion which he had conceived of Jones at Upton, upon his finding him in the room with Mrs. Waters, and though sufficient reasons had afterwards appeared entirely to clear up that suspicion, yet now the reading so handsome a character of Mr. Jones from his wife caused him to reflect that she likewise was in the inn the same time, and jumbled together such a confusion of circumstances in a head which was naturally none of the clearest, that the whole produced that green-eyed monster mentioned by Shakespeare in his tragedy of Othello. And now, as he was inquiring in the street after his wife, and had just received directions to the door, 
Unfortunately, Mr. Jones was issuing from it. Fitzpatrick did not yet recollect the face of Jones. However, seeing a young, well-dressed fellow coming from his wife, he made directly up to him and asked him what he had been doing in that house. "'For I am sure,' said he, "'you must have been in it, and I saw you come out of it.' Jones answered very modestly that he had been visiting a lady there, to which Fitzpatrick replied, "'What business have you with the lady?' Upon which Jones, who now perfectly remembered the voice, features, and indeed coat of the gentleman, cried out, "'Ha, my good friend, give me your hand. I hope there is no ill blood remaining between us upon a small mistake which happened so long ago.' "'Upon my soul, sir,' said Fitzpatrick, "'I don't know your name nor your face.' "'Indeed, sir,' said Jones, "'neither have I the pleasure of knowing your name, but your face I very well remember to have seen before at Upton.' where a foolish quarrel happened between us, which, if it is not made up yet, we will now make up over a bottle. At Upton? cried the other. Ha! upon my soul! I believe your name is Jones? Indeed, answered he, it is. Oh, upon my soul! cries Fitzpatrick. You are the very man I wanted to meet. Upon my soul, I will drink a bottle with you presently, but first I will give you a great knock over the pace. There is for you, you rascal, upon my soul. If you do not give me satisfaction for that blow, I will give you another. And then drawing his sword, put himself in a posture of defence, which was the only science he understood. Jones was a little staggered by the blow, which came somewhat unexpectedly, but presently recovering himself, he also drew, and, though he understood nothing of fencing, pressed on so boldly upon Fitzpatrick that he beat down his guard and sheathed one half of the sword in the body of the said gentleman, who had no sooner received it than he stepped backwards, dropped the point of his sword, and leaning upon it, cried, I have satisfaction enough, I am a dead man. I hope not, cries Jones, but whatever be the consequence, you must be sensible, you have drawn it upon yourself. At this instance, a number of fellows rushed in and seized Jones, who told them he should make no resistance, and begged some of them, at least, would take care of the wounded gentleman. "'Aye,' cries one of the fellows, "'the wounded gentleman will be taken care enough of, for I suppose he hath not many hours to live. As for you, sir, you have a month at least good yet.' "'Dem me, Jack,' said another, "'he hath prevented his voyage. He's bound to another port now.' and many other such jousts was our poor Jones made the subject of by these fellows, who were indeed the gang employed by Lord Fellamar, and had dogged him into the house of Mrs. Fitzpatrick, waiting for him at the corner of the street, when this unfortunate accident happened. The officer who commanded this gang very wisely concluded that his business was now to deliver his prisoner to the hands of a civil magistrate. He ordered him, therefore, to be carried to a public house, where... Having sent for a constable, he delivered him to his custody. The constable, seeing Mr. Jones very well dressed, and hearing that the accident had happened in a duel, treated his prisoner with great civility, and at his request dispatched a messenger to inquire after the wounded gentleman, who was now at a tavern under the surgeon's hands. The report brought back was that the wound was certainly mortal, and there were no hopes of life, upon which the constable informed Jones that he must go before a justice. He answered, Whatever you please, I am indifferent as to what happens to me, for though I am convinced I am not guilty of murder in the eye of the law, 
yet the weight of blood I find intolerable upon my mind. Jones was now conducted before the justice, where the surgeon who dressed Mr. Fitzpatrick appeared, and deposed that he believed the wound to be mortal, upon which the prisoner was committed to the gatehouse. It was very late at night, so that Jones would not send for Partridge till the next morning, and, as he never shut his eyes till seven, so it was near twelve before the poor fellow, who was greatly frightened at not hearing from his master so long, received a message which almost deprived him of his being where he heard it. He went to the gatehouse with trembling knees and a beating heart, and was no sooner arrived in the presence of Jones than he lamented the misfortune that had befallen him with many tears, looking all the while frequently about him in great terror, for, as the news now arrived that Mr. Fitzpatrick was dead, the poor fellow apprehended every minute that his ghost would enter the room. At last he delivered him a letter, which he had like to have forgot, and which came from Sophia from the hands of Black George. Jones presently dispatched every one out of the room, and having eagerly broke open the letter, read as follows. You owe the hearing from me again to an accident which I own surprises me. My aunt has just now shown me a letter from you to Lady Bellaston, which contains a proposal of marriage. I am convinced it is your own hand, and what more surprises me is that it is dated at the very time when you would have me imagine you was under such concern on my account. I leave you to comment on this fact. All I desire is that your name may never more be mentioned to S.W. Of the present situation of Mr. Jones's mind, and of the pangs with which he was now tormented, we cannot give the reader a better idea than by saying his misery was such that even Thwackham would almost have pitied him. But bad as it is, we shall at present leave him in it, as his good genius if he really had any, seems to have done. And here we put an end to the sixteenth book of our history. End of section 58 Recording by Andy from Inverarnon, M-E-L-Y-S dot W-S